John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, even as You gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom You have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on the earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, with the glory with which I had with You before the world was. I have manifested Your name to the men whom You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your word. And now they have come to know that everything You have given Me is from You. For the words which You gave Me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from You. And they believed that You sent Me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. And all things that are Mine are Yours, and Yours are Mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known You, yet I have known You. And these have known that You sent Me. And I have made Your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which You love Me may be in them and I in them. Jesus, was any prayer ever prayed like this one? I read it again and I am stunned. 
I read these words and I just want to be silent. I, I can't even imagine, Lord Jesus, what it was like to be among the eleven standing there when you broke into prayer. When you began to say these things. And I am so thankful to you, Lord. I praise you that you saw fit to record what you said that night. That we might hear your heart. And that we might draw ever nearer to you, Jesus. As our Lord, yes, our God, absolutely, our Savior, of course, but also as our friend. As the one who no longer calls us servants, but calls us friends because you've disclosed everything to us. You have taken us into your confidence. And we thank you and we praise you for this. Spirit of the living God, would you now fall afresh on us as we consider the words of Jesus in this most magnificent prayer and bring revelation and insight and understanding, but mostly closeness to you. In what we hear tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. J. Vernon McGee said, I feel holy and totally inadequate to deal with this prayer. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've read over this and over this and over this. And it is, it is the stuff of highest holiness. It's just profound. And if you, like me in previous days, skip over it quickly, read through it quickly, because you need to get on to the next chapter, because, you know, that's what you do. You, you read through the Bible and, and you don't stop and pause to think about what's really being said. You miss the depth of the heart of Christ here. See, here's the deal. If you want to know what matters most to somebody, listen to them pray. If you want insight into someone's deepest needs, uh, greatest desires, most intense thoughts, listen to what they pray. And in this prayer of Jesus, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible, in fact, it's the longest prayer in the Bible. It stands alone in that right. And I believe we hear what's most important to Jesus. And that's marvelous. If you didn't know by now, I pray you will begin to know tonight. We're not even going to get through the whole prayer tonight. I know we just read it, but there's too much in each and every individual verse. And it is too deep and too profound for us just to go ripping through it and finish it all up in one evening. So we're going to slow it up a bit. And just take about the first 11 verses and consider what it is Jesus is saying here. In verse 1, John begins by saying, Jesus spoke these things. What things? He spoke the things that began, do not let your heart be troubled. And then ended, I have overcome the world. What theologians like to call that Thursday night discourse that wonderful, marvelous teaching of Jesus that we have been moving through. 
But understand, as Jesus comes to this prayer, it is not a prayer of despair. He'll pray one like that in Gethsemane in a bit. Just a few moments after this, when He and the apostles will come on into Gethsemane, and He will begin to pray, great drops of blood pouring down His face, and tears and anguish. This is not that prayer. No, this is a prayer of imminent victory. This is a prayer of intermediary vision. Those two things in this prayer, we we get a sense of the victory of Jesus, the overcomer, who says, I have overcome the world, and turns his gaze to heaven and begins to pray in that state of overcoming, in that state of victory. But it's also an intermediary vision in that he lays out vision for us. He prays for us. And he prays across 2,000 years with vision for the church to come to that same point of overcoming that he is experiencing even as he bursts out in this marvelous prayer. David Chitreus, not Petraeus, Chitreus, a German Lutheran scholar back in the 1500s is thought to be the first to call John 17 the Lord's high priestly prayer. Maybe you've heard it called that. Maybe your Bible even calls it the high priestly prayer. Well, you can thank David Chitreus. We also know around that same time, 16th century Scottish reformer John Knox referred to this prayer as the holy of holies in the scripture. For John Knox, this was his favorite passage of scripture. And on his deathbed in 1572, when his wife asked him, where do you want me to read? John Knox said, where I cast my first anchor in the 17th chapter of John. And so his wife began to read and reread John 17, this high priestly prayer of Jesus, leading him, as it were, into the Holy of Holies. And John Knox entered into eternity on the wings of this prayer. This is not something to be taken lightly. It is something to savor and rest in. Chitreus calls it the Lord's high priestly prayer, not the holy of holies. Indeed. For in this prayer, Jesus takes His rightful place as both high priest and lamb. He's in the position of chief priest and offering. That is, the priestly prayer that he prays here is a high priestly prayer prayed just before sacrifice. That's what the priest did. That was the role of the high priest. To come before the Lord and before offering the sacrifice to lift up prayer to the Lord. In fact, prayer was the primary role of the priesthood. To be mediators, to to be intercessors. To be go-betweens for the people Israel to the Lord God. This is indeed a high priestly prayer as the priest prepares for the sacrifice. Only in this case, the sacrifice is the priest. The priest is the lamb and the lamb is the priest. Now, in all three of the synoptic gospels, we get the next prayer. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they take us into Gethsemane. John takes us there as well. But John doesn't even include Jesus' agonizing prayers in Gethsemane, the heart-wrenching, blood-sweating prayer that He would pour out there in the garden. John leaves it out altogether. The other three already covered that. But John 
John is showing us the victorious Christ. I've told you this before, as we come now toward the end of the Gospel of John, slowly making our way, wanting to hang on every word, and I don't know about you, but that's what I'm trying to do here. I just I don't want to rush to the end of the chapter. And as we move in this direction, more and more what we see is not a victim. We see one who is in complete authority. We see a king. And we see a priest. And we see a prophet. We see one who has total control over what's taking place around him. And the Spirit inspired John to be sure we understood that as we studied Jesus in these final chapters. In the Synoptic Gospels, we're told, Matthew 26, 39, that Jesus went a little beyond them. He fell on His face and He prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me, yet not as I will, but as You will. Now I tell you that and remind you of that because for this lengthy prayer, really it's not that long, it's three minutes. Roughly to read this prayer, about three minutes. Jesus didn't pray for half an hour. He didn't go round and round and over. And over. He, he prayed what He needed to pray. He prayed His heart to the Father. But what's interesting to me is we have this prayer here, and if you put it together with the other Gospels, at the conclusion of this prayer, Jesus and the Apostles finish their walk across the Kadron Valley. They end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, stay here for a little while while I go pray. But you just prayed, Lord. Didn't we just do that? Jesus was constantly in prayer. I mean, constantly. Sometimes He prayed with the intercession of a priest, as we see here. Other times with the intensity of a prophet. Sometimes Jesus prayed with the influence and the authority of a king. But at all times, understand this, at all times, Jesus prayed with the immediacy of a son. And we see that here. First word out of His mouth. As Jesus spoke these things. It says, lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father. Father. Pater in the Greek. Abba in the Hebrew. And by the way, before I even get to that first word of the prayer. It says, lifting up His eyes to heaven. Lifting up His eyes to heaven. Well, that's a little inappropriate, isn't it? We're praying. Fold your hands and bow your head. That's what we do. That's how we approach prayer. It's been pointed out by several Bible commentators that Jesus didn't fold His hands and bow His head, but lifted up His eyes to heaven. Jesus isn't the guy in the room who's looking around. Who prays with His eyes wide open. Who's looking to, talking to, addressing His Father. And what's interesting is you don't see this Puritan prayer posture anywhere in Scripture. The whole idea of folding hands and bowing heads and closing eyes. Now, it's not a bad idea, and I'm not opposed to it, but you don't see it in the Bible. What you see is people lifting up holy hands in prayer. You see people looking up to the heavens as they call out to God. Or you see them with faces bowed to the ground. Much more physical than we tend to be. We have a Puritan background in this country. Maybe a lot of that is going away by the wayside in America. But you know what? Our background church-wise comes out of the Puritan movement, the first people over here. I love the Puritans. Hey, they gave us Charles Spurgeon. The Puritans gave us 
a depth of study that was necessary in those days. And the Puritans showed us how to respect the Lord and to fear the Lord and to love the Lord in all holiness and righteousness, but sometimes the Puritans constrain us a bit. And I actually think part of the reason why we sit in straight back chairs in churches today still goes back to the Puritans. And why if you have one guy sitting up in the front row, kneel down in the middle of worship, everyone else is going... Jesus would have been that guy. Jesus was the guy who when prayer began, while every other head goes down in in our fellowship, His hands go up and His eyes go up. And I get that. Sometimes during worship, I'll look out the high barn windows that we have on the sides up here. And it's not because I think God's going to be looking in. It's not that I think I'm going to see the Father waving, you know. But there's something, and I know you've experienced it, something in us, maybe you're out hiking, maybe you're outside talking to the Lord, but there's something in us that just says, I want to get beyond where I am. I want to be in another place. I want to be where you are, Lord. He's, he's not, you know, limited by outer space or inner space. He's not limited by the atmosphere. He's not just beyond the furthest star. I mean, he's, he's greater than all of that. Beyond space, time, and dimension as we understand it. And yet, Jesus lifts up His eyes toward the heavens. Looking toward His Father. Acknowledging our God, who Jesus said is Spirit, whom we worship in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus lifts up His eyes. He looks toward the heaven. He prays here. He prays immediately in the garden. And again, we understand that Jesus was just always praying. Mark one thirty-five tells us in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke 3.21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, as Les just mentioned a few minutes ago, Jesus was also baptized, and while He was praying, the heavens were open. You realize what happened in Jesus' baptism? He came out of the water praying. No doubt, eyes lifted up to heaven, hands lifted up as the Spirit descended upon Him in the form of a dove. We talked about that on Sunday. Jesus was praying in His own baptism. Can He do that? Well, He did. Because Jesus was always praying. Luke 5.16, Jesus Himself would slip away to the wilderness and pray. I love that. That the Bible says He slipped away. How often do you just want to slip away in the middle of the day? Go find a quiet place and pray. Jesus did it all the time. The apostles will be looking around. Where is Jesus? He slipped away again. He was just here and he's, he's out praying. I'm sure he's praying. That's where we'll find him. Luke chapter 11 verse 1 tells us that it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And why would they ask that? Because they saw him doing it all the time. It was part of His nature. It was part of His walk. It's what Jesus always did. When we come to John 17, it's not a shock. It's not, whoa, Jesus is praying. It's, oh, Jesus is praying. Because He's always praying. We read about Jesus praying the Son to His Father in the Gospels at least 19 times. 
And people ask, why? And it's a fair question. Why is Jesus praying? I thought He was the Word made flesh. I thought He was Emmanuel, God among us. Why is God among us praying to God not among us? Why is God the Son praying to God the Father? I don't get that. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's difficult to understand. I'll give you the answer. Jesus gives us the answer. Go back to John chapter 11. John 11. In that chapter, you may recall, Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, who's now been dead and stinking for four days in the grave. And we see in verse 41, they removed the stone. This was after Jesus said, remove the stone. And of course, Martha said, don't remove the stone. That won't smell good. And Jesus says, remove the stone. So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes. There he goes again. So non-puritanical. He raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Why does God pray to God? Because of the people standing around. I mean, that is a huge part of this. Understand that he prayed with the immediacy of a son that from Jesus' perspective, his constant prayer, his constant communication with his father was what he had been doing for eternity. And so he had that immediate relationship, that constancy with the Lord, but he also prayed for the imitation of man. That we might see and understand how we are to be toward God. I've told you all this before, that that Jesus reveals to us both the Father's relationship to mankind and mankind's relationship to the Father. We get to see both ways. He shows us the Father, and then He shows us how we are to be toward the Father. And so He prays, showing us that we ought to do the same thing. Luke 18, verse 1 tells us that He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Translation. You want to not lose heart? Pray all the time. Do you want to overcome as Jesus overcame? Pray constantly. The more you pray, the more you will overcome. The less you pray, the more you're going to be undone. Pray constantly. Jesus lived His life that way. When when those Greeks came looking for Jesus, seeking Jesus, remember that Andrew and Philip, they they bring the Greeks to Jesus there at at the temple complex. And Jesus' reaction is interesting because He makes it very clear that it unnerves Him a little bit. Why? Because the appearance of these Greeks seeking Jesus signaled to Jesus that the times of the Gentiles had come. And what is it that kicks off the times of the Gentiles? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So being aware of that, knowing that, skip over to John chapter 12, verse 27. In John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour Father, glorify Your name. And that's how Jesus prayed. He he didn't just 
slip away in privacy. He didn't just steal away in the wee hours of the morning. He didn't just train up His his disciples to pray. Jesus prayed constantly, in the moment, immediately. With the immediacy of a son and for the imitation of humanity, Jesus was just always praying. No wonder Jesus overcame the world. And He invites us to do the same. To overcome the world by our faith, through our constancy in prayer. Because it's in that relationship, the relationship we have with Jesus, the relationship we have with the Father, that we overcome the world. And prayer is the key. And I'm pausing so long on this, on this first verse in John 17 because I want to challenge you with this. Challenges aren't always comfortable. Sometimes they unnerve us a little bit. They make us a little uncomfortable. I want to challenge you with the constancy of prayer. Do you, do I pray with the immediacy of a son? Do you pray, ladies, with the immediacy of a daughter? Do you find your first inclination to hit the knee and go to the Lord? Do you find your, your, your first desire in any circumstance, to look up and say, Father, thank you. Father, I praise you. As Jesus did. Colossians 4.2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer. I can devote myself to a lot of things. I'm pretty devoted to music. Devoted to my kids. I'm devoted to my wife. I'm devoted to a cupcake on a cold winter's night. I'm devoted to a lot of things. But Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. There's got to be some passion mixed into that. Some desire mixed into that. He says, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Paul says, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I just wish I could understand what God's will was. I can tell you what it is. Pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. No, I want to know His will for my life. That is His will for your life. Pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. Why? Because it deepens relationship. Because it connects you more closely with your Father. And as you'll see as Jesus prays, that's what He wants. That's what God desires more than anything else is relationship with you. Not superficial, surfacy, skirting the edge. He wants to go deep. He wants you to know Him and He wants to walk and know you. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. That's why... As we read on Sunday, that's why Paul wrote Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What does walking by the Spirit look like? Someone who's constantly in the Spirit. Someone who's constantly talking to Dad. Speaking to the Father. Lifting up eyes, hands in prayer. So he says in verse 1, back in John 17, Father... Pater, Abba, that closeness, that immediacy of the Son to the Father. Father, he says, the hour has come. Now stop right there. (laughs) We're never going to get out of the first verse. Father, the hour has come. All through His ministry, we have heard Jesus say, 
John 2.4, my hour has not yet come. John 7.8, my hour is not yet, or my time is not yet fully here. John repeats this several times. He did this because his hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. And by the way, in every single one of these instances, this is spoken or said about those who would make him king prematurely. Those who are pushing him to take his place as Messiah King. To rise up and take it right then, man's way. My hour is not yet come, Jesus says. And those who are pushing are those who would ignore sacrifice for splendor. Who would sidestep personal suffering for immediate success. Who would avoid the hard road for the easy road. That's what Satan offered Jesus in his temptations. There's an easy way to do this. Just jump off the temple. The angels will bear you up. It will be a magnificent scene. And everybody will go, whoa, that must be Messiah. And you don't have to go to the cross. And you don't have to go through anything difficult. You don't have to be a man of sorrows. Just jump off the temple. It be awesome. You know? Do a little half twist with a gainer. Whatever it takes, Lord. Jesus wouldn't do it. You know, Jesus is rarely about expediency. He is not a fast mover, not not by our account. He is methodical. He is intentional. Expediency, not so much. Jesus, earlier that evening, John tells us in John 13, verse 1, Jesus knew His hour had come. And now He says that very thing. He speaks it out loud, Father, the hour has come. The hour that He knew and now declares is the hour of darkness. And as they arrest Him in the garden, Jesus will later say, Luke 22.53, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on Me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The hour had come. It struck me that as Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. As the Son said, Father, the hour has come. I was reminded that there is a day coming when the Father will say the same thing to the Son. The hour has come. Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. He knows. Ask Dad, He knows. I love that sign. You see that in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, George Bailey comes walking into the drugstore and there's that big sign up on the wall and he's trying to figure out what to do. And he looks up and he sees the sign and it says, Ask Dad, He knows. And there's a dad sitting there smoking a cigarette at the bottom. It says, Sweet Corporal. It's a cigarette ad. Ask Dad, He knows. Knows what? Don't smoke. (laughs) He knows. But I love the sign because that George sees that and he goes, ah, yeah, and runs to go talk to his dad. Ask your father. Because the father knows when the hour will come for our departure. And because Jesus goes through this hour of great darkness, the hour of our departure is going to be glorious. Now, Jesus begins. And he starts by praying for himself. The first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. And in this high priestly prayer, our great high priest, number one, prays over sacrifice. He prays over 
the sacrifice. As I said before, as the high priest of the Jews would pray over the offering of the Paschal Lamb, so now Jesus prays over Himself as He is about to be offered up. And that's what makes this prayer so high priestly. By the way, what was the purpose of the sacrifice? What was the purpose of the crucifixion? We've been over this before, but I want to make sure we've got it. Was the purpose of the crucifixion propitiation? Or salvation? I would say to you, it was neither. That the purpose of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was glorification. It's always about the glory. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. That's the whole point. It completely spun around my entire theology and understanding of Scripture and of God's will and His desire in my life and and His work in this world completely spun me around when I realized that the sacrificial work of propitiation and salvation, those are just elements of God's glorification. That the true end of all of this is to bring glory to God in the high heavenly places. Your salvation is important to the Lord. Yes, He loves you, but your salvation is not the end. It is part of the means to the end. The end is glory. His glory. The end is that God is lifted up, that that Jesus is glorified. And this has a huge heavenly impact. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8. Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. Which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, listen, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That the end game is not even just that we glorify God, but it's all the rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly places glorify God having witnessed what He did through us and in us in the church in our salvation and propitiation through the crucifixion in the world. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? That it's all about His glory. And when we get that on a very real and non-theological way, just a practical way, when I get that everything ultimately is about the glory of God, it changes how I live my life. I no longer live striving for myself at all. But I begin to start to think like Jesus, perhaps when He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And so our lives become about His glory. Jesus' life was about the glory of the Father. I love that. He glorifies the Father. Well, the Father glorifies the Son. The Spirit's going to come along and glorify Jesus. It's all about the glory. In verse 2, Jesus says, after saying, Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh... That to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. 
This is high priestly authority unparalleled. There has never been a priest, had never been a priest prior to Jesus with this kind of authority. What do you mean? I mean all the other high priests in the entire line of the high priesthood of Israel were high priests of Israel. They had authority over Israel. They did not have authority over all flesh. They were limited simply to the people of God, the Jewish people. Israel's high priest had mediating authority over Israel to go between the Jewish people and the Father as they would come into the holy place. And they would offer up that incense to the Lord and pray for the people. And that was their primary role. But now our greater high priest, Jesus, has authority over all flesh. But watch this. John 6.44 Jesus said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, that somewhat parallels what He just said. That to all whom You have given Him, He may give eternal life. So the Father gives everyone to the Son, draws people to the Son, and the Son gives them eternal life, right? Well, John 14.6, Jesus said, No one comes to the Father but through Me. But I thought the Father drew us to the Son. And now Jesus says, Yeah, and no one comes to the Father but through Me. That's mind-boggling. That's like God. (laughs) That's just the stuff of holiness. It is who God is. Here the Father gives to the Son... Jesus says, all whom you have given Him, and then the Son gives them eternal life. And it works both ways, and it's not too confusing if you understand that the Father and the Son are one. It doesn't matter which way it goes. Father brings brings us to Jesus. Jesus takes us to the Father. It doesn't matter which way it happens. Both are God. And truly, both are working in harmony, in concert, Father and Son and Spirit, to bring people to salvation. Why? Why are we brought to salvation? For the glory of God. Let me ask it again. Why are we brought to salvation? Amen. Okay, keep that. Hang on to that. Don't forget that. The intended result is always the glory of God. Verse 3. Jesus continues to pray. He says, and He did this a lot quicker than I am. I get that. But verse 3. He says, this is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And in one verse, Jesus turns all the religions of the world up on its ear. It wasn't about keeping all the rules. It truly wasn't about me making myself righteous, pulling myself up by my spiritual bootstraps. It wasn't any of that. Eternal life, Jesus says? It's that they may know you. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's not just about eternity. It's not just about living on and on in some ethereal, cloud-hopping, harp-plucking boredom. That tragically, you know, we might laugh at that, but tragically in the world outside, in, in the culture in which we live, most people, if you say, what, describe what you think heaven would be like. You know, if you're going to go to heaven, what it will be like? Well, I don't know. You know, harps and halos. I don't look very good in hats. So, you know, the halo thing, I don't know how that's going to work out. 
sitting on clouds, old man in a rocking chair. I mean, it just sounds boring. Have you read Revelation 20, 21, and 22? Anyone? I mean, for crying out loud. Revelation 4 and 5? Wow. It's not what we thought. This salvation that brings glorification to God is about one thing. Listen, knowing God through all eternity. Really knowing Him. It's about drawing near to Jesus in this everlasting relationship that goes on forever. And that's not boring. I've, I've shared with you all before, one of the big lies in our culture is, is that marriage gets old. Wrong. It's not true. It is simply not true. We get old. <laughs> marriage, if you stick with it, if you hang in there, if you seek the Lord at the center, gets better and better and better. And I love my wife now more than I did 29 years ago when we wed. And I will love her more next year should we all still be here. Because it gets better. That's that's the idea. Well, I've been married 27 years and my marriage isn't better. Okay, but that's your fault. (laughs) That's the flesh. But the intention is a long-term growing relationship where you and your spouse know each other just so well it's, it's just comfortable and it's... And it's good. And it's encouraging. Take all of the sin out. And what would it be like? What would my marriage be like without sin? Wow. A relationship with the Father is a relationship that never gets old, never gets boring, always grows deeper, always is more encouraging, always more strengthening and comforting and just good. And we get to do that on into eternity. And because He's God, we'll never plumb the depths of His nature. We will never get tired. We will never stop learning all there is to learn and know and understand about Him. I mean, it's going to take us several billion years just to figure out what He did in history. And we get to do that on and on. John wrote in 1 John 5.20, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. So wipe away all false notions of eternity and replace it with this, hanging out with God forever. That's eternity. Walking with Jesus always. That's eternal life. And that's why Paul writes after talking about the rapture of the church. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, and 18, at the end of verse 17, I love this phrase. He says, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, that sounds good. He doesn't say, and so we shall always be sitting in church. And so we shall always be trying our hardest. And so we shall always be memorizing more script. No. We will always be with the Lord. That's where He's leading us. By the way, where He is, there is glory. What a wonder. What a marvel. Listen. Everyone's going to live forever. Everyone's going to live forever. Everyone. The question is, what will be the condition 
of my eternal existence? And the answer is found in what I choose. I choose to receive Jesus or I choose to reject Jesus. I am going to live forever. It's not like, oh, you reject Jesus, you just get to go into soul sleep. No such thing. We are going to live forever, all people. Question is, where are we going to be? With Him or apart from Him? And I don't have anything to tell you tonight about hell except you don't want to be there. We'll just leave it at that. Verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. You see, that's how you bring glory to God. You do what He made you to do. A fish swimming brings glory to God. A tree growing apples, if it's an apple tree, brings glory to God. A a fir tree waving in the wind glorifies God, doing what it was created to do. The bird flying glorifies God. The, the, The squirrel scattering. we got a bunch of them in our front yard. They're just a blast to watch. They are so fast. You know, you open the door, they're just gone. You know what what they just did when they go, they glorify God. Because they are functioning in their created nature. And so we bring glory to God. Jesus brought glory to God by simply doing what God had had Him do. He accomplished the work He was sent to do. And so God's glorified. Now, Father, He says, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. That is one of those mind-blowing statements. And Jesus says, in essence, let's get back to glory. I want to get back to glory. The same glory I have with you before, I'm ready to come back and join with you in that again. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Well, that's not a problem. Jesus is not another. He's God among us. God with us. And the weight of the divinity of Christ, the as we've called it, the Godness of Christ, is absolutely unavoidable to everybody who's honestly read this Gospel. I told you when we started, you cannot read through the Gospel of John and miss the fact that Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. Claimed to be God in the flesh. There's no other way to understand Him. He leaves no other option. He is not another. The Son and the Father are one. The glory of the one is the glory of the other. And so Jesus, our great overcoming high priest, you almost hear in this a little excitement for His homecoming. You know, as He says, I'm ready. I'm ready for glory. Verse 5 again, He says, Glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You you can't listen to that and simply call Jesus a teacher or merely a prophet or even a miracle worker. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says the following, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and I would add from whence he came, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So Jesus prays first for Himself, the high priest, praying over the sacrifice. Secondly, Jesus now, the high priest, prays over His disciples. Verse 6. I have manifested Your name to the men whom You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your Word. A couple of Greek words I want to point out to you here. One is men. I have manifested Your name to the men. The word men is anthropoi, from anthropos, and that word never exclusively means men. It means mankind. It means men and women. So what Jesus is saying is across the board, I manifested your name to all of those whom you gave me. And we know there were women, disciples, followers of Jesus in his ministry. We know his ministry was supported by a group of women. We know where there were a group of women standing there at the cross. We know it was a group of women who went to the tomb that first morning. So we know there were women involved with this. So girls, don't just stand back and go, wow, it's just apostle stuff. That's for the guys. No, it's all of us. And Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the anthropoi, to the men, to the women, to humanity, whom you gave me out of the world. The second Greek word to note here is manifested. We've seen it before. It's from the root word phaneros. It's here, phaneroo. I love how the Greeks do that. Phaneroo. It's kind of like a rap Greek, you know. It's phaneroo. Anyway, it means to make known what was unknown. Or to expose, or literally to cause to shine. Jesus says, I have made known. I have caused to shine. I have exposed. I have made your unknown name known to them. And I have no doubt that Jesus manifested the name and the nature of God to His followers. That they saw in Jesus the very character and nature of God. John would write that later. As from the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld Him. We saw Him. We saw His glory, John would write. And so, that makes sense to me. But the verse says, They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. One is betraying Jesus at that moment. And the other eleven are about to scatter like frightened squirrels. They're about to just split to leave Jesus in the lurch. And yet Jesus says, and they have kept your word. And I read that and I thought, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with Jesus, don't get me wrong. But when Jesus says something and I don't see how it can be, it's, it's up to me to go, Lord, you got to show me this. you got to explain something to me. And they have kept your word. Miguel de Cervantes wrote that great play, turned into the musical Man of La Mancha, about Don Quixote. And Don Quixote in the book is quoted as saying the following. He says, when life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. Too much sanity may be madness. And he says, but maddest of all is to see life as it is and not as it should be. I love that line. To see life as it is 
And not as it should be is the height of madness. Jesus, listen, Jesus saw the eleven as they should be. Jesus saw the eleven as they would be keepers of His Word. When He says they have kept Your Word, they hadn't kept His Word. Oh, they had tried. They had stumbled along. They had done their best, but they really hadn't kept His Word. Not like they would. We have four Gospels because these guys kept the Word. We have the entire New Testament because men like Paul and James and Jude kept the Word. Jesus, we've seen this phraseology in the Bible before. It's called a proleptic phrase where God calls something as if it is even though it isn't because it will be. And so Jesus says they have kept your Word and like Don Quixote, He's saying, man, I'm seeing them as they should be, as they will be, not as maybe they look to the outward world right now. And with a little help from the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, the strong advocate, my sure rememberer, my saving witness, by the power of God's Spirit, they would indeed keep His Word. And get this, Jesus has the same confidence in you. That you will have kept His Word. Now right now, This is Rick's surmise, but right now, in the heavens, Jesus could, and I believe would, look at the Father and say, Dave, He's kept my word. Say, Doug, He's kept my word. Lori Beth, she's kept my word. And we would say, well, not so well this week. I wish you had checked in with me you know, last Sunday morning because, man, I was in it deep. I was keeping your word, but I haven't since then. And Jesus would say, yeah, you have. Because He sees you not as you are, but as you will be. Well, how do you know that? Ephesians 2, verse 5, Paul says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, Christ made us alive together, or He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Listen, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How many of you have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? See, a few hands are going up. Some of you are going... I don't recall. (laughs) I don't remember having been there. You are right now seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. From God's perspective. See, God who's not limited by time already sees you there. We have already arrived as far as He's concerned. It's that proleptic mentality that He says it's a done deal. He says, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no man can boast. And aren't you thankful that He sees you not as you are, but as you are in Him. That's how Jesus sees you. That's how even as He's praying, He sees the apostles as they are in Him. Washed and sanctified and redeemed as they will be. And that's how He sees me and it's how He sees you. As you will be in Him. Fellow disciples, you might feel sometimes like a scampering squirrel. Life may get a little nutty. You may feel like you're up a tree. But gang, 
Jesus sees you and sees me as though we were already seated on high, saints and keepers of His Word. How is that possible? By grace. By His grace. Verse 7, Jesus continues praying. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them. And truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. And they did, for the most part. Even for all their struggles, even for their doubts on occasion, they did. They they believed. So does my daughter. I love the conversations. Donna Marie and I were, were driving along the other day and she said again, she's asked me this question before, Dad, how do I know that I have faith? How do I know that I believe? And we got into this discussion about faith and belief. I said, why did you get baptized in the Jordan last year when we were in Israel? And she said, well, because I believe God wanted me to. There you go. But how do I know? Yeah, I mean, we, we all hit those places from time to time. I want to know that I know. I want to be absolutely sure that I believe. Listen to how it works. They have come to know everything you have given me is from you. And the words which you gave me, I gave to them. They received them and they understood and they believed. Do you get it? What makes us believe in Jesus and re-believe in Jesus and deepen belief and faith in Jesus? We keep hearing His words. And the more we are in His word, the more we believe. And the less you're in His word, the more shaky your belief. That, that is just as simple as it gets, my friends. And if we truly bought that, this place would be packed out on Wednesday nights. And I don't say that to guilt trip the rest of the fellowship. It doesn't work anyway. They're not here to be guilt tripped, right? <laughs> but seriously, if I really believe that the more time I spent in the Word, the stronger and deeper and richer my faith, I would be anywhere, everywhere the Word was spoken and taught constantly. I would be in the Word every single day of my life. I would start my day with the Word and end my day with the Word and be downloading sermons through the Word and talking to believers about the Word and memorizing the Word and just just overwhelmed by the Word because I know, as the Bible tells us in Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. You want to increase your faith? Keep listening. Keep hearing. Don't just hear. As Les and I were just talking about, don't just hear. Listen. Listen with the intent to respond. Listen with the intent to do. See, God says, and this is a promise, and this is absolute, gang. Isaiah 55.10, As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's God's absolute confidence in His Word to achieve what He desires to achieve. And so Jesus says that's what's been going on with His apostles. They've been hearing My Word and because they hear, they have been believing. They actually believe I came from You, Father. And in verse 9 He says, I ask on their behalf. 
Do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. In other words, if you belong to Jesus, and all things that are His are the Father's, then you belong to the Father. If you belong to the Father, and all things that are the Father's are the Son's, then you belong to the Son. And that is good news. But there's something else He said right here that is not good news. In fact, it's a little shocking. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Listen. Jesus does not pray for the world. Jesus does not pray for the world. No intercession. No go-between. Outside of Christ, you are on your own. I do not pray for the world, Jesus says. Now, we'll get there on Sunday. He already talked about this in John 16. But there is a way by which the Lord is reaching out to the world. There is a method by the Parakletos where He is coming alongside all people in the world to try to bring them to faith, to encourage them to come to believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So that is in play. But what Jesus says here is absolutely stunning. I do not ask on behalf of the world. (coughs) Jesus is not interceding for the world right now. And does not intercede for the world. God told Jeremiah... In Jeremiah 7.16 Do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. Why? I mean, you know it's got to be bad when when God says no more praying, I'm not listening. And the Lord told His prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to give you prophecies. I want you to bring the prophecies to the people, but do not pray for them because I'm not listening. Which kind of tells me there's something very compelling in our prayers to the Lord. Almost as if if Jeremiah did pray for them, God would have to relent and show more mercy than He wanted to show. You know what I mean? And so He says to Jeremiah, no praying. Don't do it! You can almost see Jeremiah going... But no. The Father, no. Don't. Don't pray for them. Why? They were in abject rebellion. They were rebellious. They didn't want God. They had no relationship with God. And understand this, there is no pretense with God. God doesn't play Ken and Barbie. What do you mean? I mean, He doesn't play pretend relationships. God doesn't play sins. Or any of the video games that are out today. God is not, I'm sorry, you gamers, God is not a gamer. I think if anything, God created Pong, but He is not a gamer. And if you don't even know what Pong is, I feel sorry for you. Pong was the ultimate profound game. Two paddles, one ball, and I could do it. 
I loved it. Simple, classic. Anyway, God doesn't play games. God is not into false relationships. He never goes superficial. You want to be superficial with God? He's not interested. You want to go deep with God? You want to know God? You want to walk with God through His Spirit? He is all in. He rejects superficiality. You either receive Him and you love Him and you walk with Him or you don't. And so Jesus does not pray for the world because the, the world does not want a relationship with God. The second, the moment, the instant that a person turns the direction of the Father to want to know Him, the instant someone wants to, to get to know Jesus, He is there. But if you don't want Him, okay, He's not going to play around. He's not going to pretend. That's why the whole church thing is, is really dicey, gang. That's why 2,000 years of cathedrals and buildings and religion and denominations and all this stuff built up, that's just not God. The worship is, yes, and, and, the, and the austerity and the, and the fear of the Lord, like I said, with the Puritans, absolutely, that's, that's I'm sure, appreciated. But it's relationship that God desires. It's being real with us. How many of you like phony relationships? You know them. You know them the moment they're happening. Someone just wants something from you, so they're trying to be all nice to you, and the second they get it, they're done. God's not into that. He has no use for it. And so Jesus does not pray for the world. Understand this. He has authority over all flesh. He died for the world, but He only prays for those who receive Him. He only prays for those who would belong to Him. It's a sobering thought, but it is in keeping with this fact that Jesus is truth. And being truth, He's genuine. He's authentic. And He ain't playing games. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Pause right there. I'm going to stop there for tonight. But I want you to notice two last things. First, on the night before His death, Jesus is already gone. He's already gone. He's in the midst of His prayer. He has not been arrested. He has not been dragged out of Gethsemane. He has not gone through the six trials. He has not faced the crucifixion. That hasn't even happened yet. And what does He say? I'm no longer in the world. Now again, if you were one of the apostles standing there, you might be thinking, uh... Jesus, you're right here. What do you mean you're not in the world? Gang, he is so committed to seeing this dark hour through. And he was so certain of the outcome, Jesus is already gone. You hear it in his heart. He's already gone. In the midst of this prayer, I'm no longer in the world. He's already halfway home. Are you? Can you say that? Is your heart already gone? Or is it stuck here? What do you mean? I mean there are days when every step feels like I am just walking in thick, miry sludge. Where it's just ah, it's just tiring and it's overwhelming and, and it's hard. Man, life is hard. And in those days, when I see Jesus... 
who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, I mean, it just pulls me out. I've told you the reason I talk all the time about the rapture of the church is, gang, I'm already gone. I have a job to do here. I have a life to live that He has called me to. I get that and I am all about that because I want to see Him glorified. I'm already gone. I'm already at the throne. I'm already worshiping Jesus. I'm already halfway home. I'm already focused there because when I focus on the joy set before me, everything I I do here counts. Everything I do here is significant when I'm already gone. It's not what the world thinks. It's not that, oh, okay, you Christians, if you get so gone as your pastor is saying to be, you're just going to move up to the top of Mount Airy and pitch a bunch of tents and walk around in linen waiting for Jesus. No. That's just dumb. That's not already gone. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world and is about to do the most significant thing in the world that He has ever done. Why? Because His heart is headed for home. And that's the motivation. The joy set before Him is the motivation to do what He has to do here. The rapture of the church gang for me is the joy set before me. When I think about that instant, when I think, and I can't even imagine what it's going to be like to suddenly be in the clouds with Jesus, and so we shall forever be with the Lord. Wow, mind-boggling, can't wait. I'm so excited by that that I do what I do here. That's my motivation. That's my great desire, is to be there so I do this here. What was the joy set before Jesus? Two things, and we're done. The joy set before Jesus, the first was His heavenly home. His heavenly home. He's already gone. The Eagles sang that. Back in the early 1970s, they had that hit song, I'm already gone. First verse. Well, I heard some people talking just the other day, and they said you were going to put me on a shelf. Let me tell you, i got some news for you, and you'll soon find out it's true, and then you'll have to eat your lunch all by yourself. Profound lyrics. Back in the 70s. The Eagles and Pong, I'm telling you. They were good years. I'm already gone, Glenn Fry sings. What's he saying? It's a breakup song. I'm out of here. You know, you think you got something on me? I'm out the door, woman. I'm gone. I'm already gone. But Jesus isn't breaking up. He's not breaking up. Two things comprised the joy set before Him. One was His heavenly home, to which He was already gone. But the second is His heavenly family. Jesus is already gone, but He's not dumping anyone. In fact... As he said earlier this same evening, John 14, 2, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm already gone. For home and for family. And so, in this Holy of Holies, in this high priestly prayer, The high priest first prays over the sacrifice. And then he prays over the disciples. But for me, the most profound moment in this prayer, and we didn't even get to it tonight, we will hopefully next week, is where Jesus prays, verse 20. Go ahead and look down at it. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for me. On that night, you were on his mind. That's amazing. He prays over the sacrifice. He prays over the disciples. And then He prays over the disciples of His disciples. Which is us. Because as I said before, the most important role of the priest was to make intercession for the people. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. Making intercession. 2,000 years ago, interceding for you and for me. And He's still doing it. He never stopped. Hebrews 7.23 says the former priests on the one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, you had to have a backup plan. One high priest goes down, you got to have the next one coming along. you got to have the priest working the temple and doing all that work. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able... Also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus was constantly praying on earth, and He is constantly praying in heaven. He has never stopped. Thank you, Jesus, that You pray for us tonight. That even as we sit here considering the words of this glorious, holy prayer, that You're praying right now. And for the last hours we've been sitting in here studying, you have been praying for your people. I have no doubt, Lord, that as you look at those of us gathered here tonight, that there are many prayers you have offered for individuals here in the last hour. That you have looked into our hearts and seen the needs You've seen our struggles. You've seen our lack of faith. You've seen our hardship. You've seen our broken hearts. You've seen our desire, Lord, to somehow make it out of this world praising You and You have prayed for us. And I know that because You told us so. Thank You, thank You, thank You for being our great high priest and daily making intercession for us. We love You, Lord. Seal Your Word to our hearts tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.